Well, since I uh, wrote the way I did the outline, um, I can't flip the board over because it would be upside down. What's, what's one thing as we get into tonight, though, I want to ask you, because this is going to answer that, I think. What's one thing you've heard about people during this last year as they've commented on COVID, whether uh, Christian folks or not? What's one effect it's had on people? Fear. Fear. Okay, fear. Boredom. Okay, boredom. Isolation. Isolation. Let's talk about something tonight related to that. The fact that the Christian is never truly isolated, right? Because look at this passage tonight that we're going to look at. The ever-present spirit. Ever-present spirit. Uh, Jesus and John 16. Let's pick up reading though in verse 1 because I want you to understand the context. John chapter 16 and verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will speak, uh, he will not speak rather, he will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. You know, in Matthew 1, you'll recall, Joseph had a dream. And what did he see in that dream? What was revealed to Joseph? That Mary was pregnant. And that he didn't need to be afraid to take Mary to be his wife because that which was conceived in her was what? From the Holy Spirit. And the angel said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
And he went on to say, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So we've just come through the Christmas season where we celebrate that God is with us, that Christ coming in the incarnation, God is with us. What a wonderful truth that is. God is with us, and as Paul says in Romans 8, God is not only with us, but he is for us. Romans 8, 31 and following. The scripture says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Well, just as God sent forth his son, God has also sent forth his spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is a testimony in and of itself of the fact that the Father is with us. God is with us. And so I want us to see tonight about the ever-present Spirit, no matter what we go through in our lives. Uh, people at home, Christians at home, who feel lonely and isolated, they can know that they have with them the ever-present Spirit. And we see in this text, first of all, that he has a global presence. Somebody read verse 7 for us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Uh, it is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, thank you. As Jesus has been pointing out in the previous verses, the believer will certainly not be without challenges in the world. We will have opposition. We'll have persecution. We'll have trial and tribulation. We live in a world without love. And it seems like it's growing in that lack of love all the more every day. And we know that the world is not going to embrace all of the convictions of the believer. And sometimes the world's going to hate us, openly hate us, and persecute us. And likewise, we live in a world without peace, and we see evidence all around us of that every day, don't we? And I think of what Paul said in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. The world is a difficult place. As Paul says there, it's a dangerous place. Perilous times are coming. And so we know as the body of Christ in a world like this, we're to love one another, the body of Christ. And we're not to despair because as believers, we have with us the ever-present Holy Spirit. God's with us. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, we know that in his incarnation, he emptied himself. Did he empty himself of his divine nature? No. 
without emptying himself of his divine nature or glory, he, he emptied himself of the heavenly glory that he enjoyed before the incarnation. And by coming in the flesh, he took upon himself some of the limitations of human flesh, didn't he? He was fully God, yet fully man. And, and so Jesus limited himself along with humanity, being made like us, yet without sin. In order to die, he had to be mortal. You what? In order to die, he had to be mortal. Certainly, yes. And certainly one of the limitations that Christ took on in human flesh was the fact, just like any other human being, that he could only be in one place, one place at a time. And so if he was at a feast in Jerusalem, that meant that at the very same moment he was not up in Galilee teaching along the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee. He chose this limitation. You may recall how exasperated Mary and Martha were at the death of their brother Lazarus. What did they, what did they say to Jesus? If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus was promising here that in the midst of it all, the Holy Spirit will always be right here with his children. There will never be a time that he won't be here with us. And because he's God's Holy Spirit, he will not be subject to the same limitations that Jesus placed upon himself in the incarnation. And so as we're studying the Bible here tonight in Concord, if there's a prayer meeting and Bible study gathered at a church in Jacksonville, Florida at the same time, guess what? The Holy Spirit's there Right now, he can be behind, beside the hospital bed of the believer in Texas, and he can be at the hospital bed of the believer in Thailand. And that's why Jesus said it would be to our advantage for him to go, so the Spirit would come. Now, this is the same reason Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel that we would do greater works than Jesus. It's not that we're greater and can do greater. It's that the Holy Spirit is at work in us through the body of Christ that is all over the world. And that means that whatever Jesus could do when he walked upon the earth, the Holy Spirit is likewise doing and can do. We know that Isaiah 9, speaking of Jesus, said his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But you know, we can apply those verses also to the Holy Spirit because the members of the Trinity, while they have their own personality, they're at work in complete harmony and cooperation with one another. And so what the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Spirit does. What the Spirit does, the Son does. What the... Son does, the Father does. I mean, any way you want to connect the dots. So here tonight, 
as other churches are meeting all over the nation and indeed all over the world, hopefully in midweek services, the Holy Spirit is with each one of us. Each body of Christ that's meeting and each individual Christian all over the world, the Holy Spirit's with us. And so you and I can have comfort and peace knowing this. What I'm telling you is the ever-present Spirit has a global presence. And again, that's what Jesus meant when He said, it's to your advantage that I go. There's nowhere that you and I can flee from His presence. David talked about that even in Psalm 139, didn't he? There's no, even if he hadn't wanted to get away from God's presence, he couldn't because the Spirit of God is there wherever we go. Well, he has a specified purpose. Look at verses 8 through 11. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit is carrying on the work of Christ in the world today. And in that work, there are very specific things that the Holy Spirit does. First of all, what do we see here that He does? He convicts us of sin. The word means to bring conviction, to reprove, and to present the evidence against us. Now, you would think that Everyone believes in sin, but that's not the case. In fact, in our world today, sin is becoming nothing more than a ridicule concept that some just consider to be a, an outdated and old-fashioned idea. You know, the world's number one problem is that it doesn't know its number one problem. In a survey some years ago, when asked what the number one problem is, Americans responded by saying crime or violence or homelessness or drugs or poverty or racism. Nobody listed the number one problem. We don't seem to know what it is. We're kind of like the man who went to his doctor and he was beside himself because he was convinced he was dying. And when the doctor asked him why he felt like he was dying, he said, well, doc, it's simple. I'm in agony from the tip of my head to the soles of my feet. I touch my head and I scream in pain. I touch my face and I scream in pain. I touch my chest or my shoulders or my arms and I scream in pain. I touch my abdomen or my thighs or my calves or my feet and I simply can't stand the pain. There's got to be something terribly wrong with me. I must be dying. Well, the doctor examined him very thoroughly and said, you're, Sir, you're certainly right about one thing. There is something wrong with you. And the man said, Sit there, I told you. What is it? And the doctor said, You've got a broken finger. 
<laughs> we don't know what our real problem is. You see, sins, plural, sins, plural, are symptomatic of the real problem. The real problem is sin, singular. We commit sins because we're guilty of sin. We have a sin nature, and by nature and choice we sin. You see, we think it's all these sins, but sins are the fruit of our sin nature. And there's one sin that Jesus said the Holy Spirit zeroes in on. It's the sin of, what's the worst of all? The sin of unbelief. It's, that's the unpardonable sin, right? Unbelief. In a sense, do you realize, in a sense, that if you are an unbeliever, you are a worst sinner, worse sinner than the worst sinner of all who turns to Christ. It doesn't matter the sins this worst sinner has done. If you continue in unbelief, you are a worse sinner than the worst sinner who has turned to Christ. Because the one who is still in unbelief is guilty of the greater sin of unbelief. You turn to Christ, and even heinous sins are forgiven. Right? So, I guess I should say it this way. A, a, a very good unbeliever, somebody that man would say is good, a very good unbeliever is really worse a terrible, terrible person who has since come to Christ. Because the good unbeliever is still in unbelief. People don't go to hell because they cheat and lie and commit adultery and murder and so forth and so on. They, they continue in those activities because the heart have a sin nature. And it's this sin nature that's never been faced and dealt with that will send them to hell. Not all the sins they do as a result of that sin nature. You go to hell because of unbelief. The Holy Spirit works in such a way to draw men to faith in Jesus. Dwight L. Moody once said, and I quote here, if a man is troubled about his sin, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit. Moody went on to say, for Satan never told him that he's a sinner. Folks, as the gospel is read or preached, it is the Spirit that gets a hold of somebody's heart. Preachers and teachers can't do that. All we can do is speak to to ears. It takes the Holy Spirit to speak to hearts and bring conviction. William Barclay tells the story of a missionary going into an Indian village and, and telling the story of Jesus in slides 
that the Indians could understand and relate to. When it got to the crucifixion scene, one Indian stepped forward and said, come down, come down from that cross. I should be hanging on that cross, not you. Well, who convicted that man to be able to come to that conclusion? The Holy Spirit. I was going to ask if you could elaborate on why um, the term blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's really another sermon all in and of itself. But... <laughs> I'm just going to do it. Sure, but the Holy Spirit's work is to do what? to draw somebody to Christ, to reveal that Christ is who the Scripture says He is. And somebody who turns against Christ is rejecting the witness of the Spirit to the Messiah. You're, and His job is to draw someone to Christ. And so the blasphemy was this settled conviction on the part of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus was not who the Holy Spirit was revealing that He is, was and is. And they were actually saying that He was of the evil one. They were rejecting God's witness of His Son. I know that the Scripture says that it refers to the evil part of unbelief. Right. And so the reverse, I guess, logic of that would be that Spirit in this. Think of Simon Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And Simon Peter gets to the end of the sermon and the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and they were cut to their hearts and said, what must we do to be saved? So again, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals this. Uh, only the Holy Spirit can bring about this conviction in somebody's heart and bring somebody to the point of turning to Christ. Folks, when somebody is troubled over their sin and they end up getting saved, it's always the Holy Spirit that has drawn them to Christ. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. A lost man doesn't just get up one day and say, you know what, I think all of a sudden I'll just get saved. No, if a lost man gets up one day and says, I need to be saved, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in his heart. The Holy Spirit is convicting that lost man of his sin and drawing that lost man to Christ. Lost people don't come to Christ on their own without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He also conveys to us Christ's righteousness. Not only does He convict the world of sin, but, but He also conveys to us Christ's righteousness in these verses, verses 8 through 11. 
<clears throat> Why is it that when lost men think of dying, so oftentimes they are afraid? I want you to think about that. What is, what is this over here? It's driving me crazy. <laughs> Do y'all hear it over here? Okay. Anyway, anyway. But the preaching's so good, we don't hear it. Well, hey, amen. You're my, you're my member of the week for saying that. So again, when lost men think of dying, oftentimes, oftentimes they're afraid. I want you to think about that a minute. The reason lost people fear dying is because they know instinctively that to face God in their condition is not a good thing. Well, they know they're going to face sin, yes. righteousness, and judgment. judgment. Exactly. exactly. Those three things. Yeah. They know that God will be looking for something in their life that they don't have on their own. They can't supply what they know God will be requiring. And so there's fear. But the Holy Spirit convicts us not only of our sin, but of Christ's righteousness. That's the real key to understanding righteousness in this verse. Speaking of the righteousness of Christ. When we think, we, we think in terms of righteousness being what we do, either good or bad. A good man is righteous, we think. If I die a good man, I can stand before God without fear. That's the way man looks at it. We think a religious man is righteous, and that's what the Jews thought. Paul says, setting aside the righteousness of God, they've tried to establish their own righteousness based on the law. But the problem with that is that God doesn't accept our righteousness. The prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags in his sight. But what the Holy Spirit points out is not only our sin, but our need of righteousness that goes beyond human good works. The Holy Spirit, in other words, conveys to us the righteousness of Christ and that we must have his righteousness. Think about it this way. Jesus Christ was crucified as a criminal. That was the charge against him. The Jews thought he blasphemed God. The Romans thought he was guilty of treason. But as the centurion stood there at the foot of the cross and watched him die, something changed inside the centurion. What did he say? Surely this man was the son of the living God. What changed him? Holy Spirit. Convicting him of this man's identity and this man's righteousness. Think of Paul on the road to Damascus. What changed him? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit changed both of these men. Instead of seeing Jesus as a criminal, they now knew him as Savior and Lord. And so the Holy Spirit conveys to us the righteousness of Christ and how by faith we must come to Him clothed in His righteousness. You see, folks, 
We have to stand before God perfectly righteous because God doesn't grade on the curve. And the only way we can stand before God righteous is by being clothed with Christ's righteousness. I'm going to say that, because I was reading through Romans, that he said that, uh, Paul said that the, the law is there to make um, sin exceedingly sinful. Mm -hmm. Which, if you use that conclusion and the fact that Christ met all the requirements of the law, being perfect, even as Father, heaven is perfect, mm -hmm. then the sinner who's about to die sees a perfection that he's getting ready to get compared to. It's, so it's about contrast. Sure. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, um, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The only, the only way you and I can be perfect is to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Because we don't have perfection of our own. And again, God doesn't grade on a curve. You know? I think I've, I've, I believe I've told you before some years ago about um, a class I had over at UNCC in economics. Had a nightmare of a professor. And we met in one of these big amphitheaters theater rooms in the Friday building, the business major building over at UNCC at the time. Big, huge room, big, big, massive size class. And anyway, I heard, I don't know, I, I don't know if this is just campus gossip or what, but anyway, I heard they had ended up firing him because I was told the semester I had him even, he was on probation for failing too many students. And it finally caught up with him. Uh, he was also pretty mean. But I remember the first day of class, I had to miss because of a, a procedure I was having, a medical procedure I was having done. I had told a friend, I said, pick up the class syllabus for me and tell me anything I need to know about getting started. And he came back to me later and I said, you get my syllabus? He said, oh no. He said, if you could have heard this professor's speech to us on the first day, I wasn't about to go up and get a syllabus. <laughs> he, he told us, he told us he had no sympathy for anybody who ever missed his class for any reason. Well, I was on the front row in an amphitheater room and there was one seat next to me that was empty and a girl came back after several classes and sat there. This isn't gossip because I heard this with my own ears before class started sitting there and he walks over to her and looks down at me and her and he looks at her and he said, are you the girl that's been out because you were, you were in a bad traffic accident, a car wreck? She said, yes sir, that was me. And he looked at her and said, Poor baby, did you bleed? And he turned around and walked back to his podium. Uh, and again, that's not secondhand. Not, I was sitting there and heard it. But anyway, when he posted the grades, he had to curve because he failed. I remember looking at the grades on his door that he posted for my class, and I was tied for the fourth highest grade in the class with a C. 
and I had to do extra credit to get a C. And I was, I'd always been through school pretty much an A student, A, B, a and B student, but anyway, it took me doing extra credit even to get a C. And so there were like five passing grades, and then the other 60 or however many, it was a huge class, and they were D's and F's. So for anybody to pass, basically, you probably graded on curve. And then along comes somebody, you know, make an A and mess up the curve, right? <laughs> well, you know what Christ did? Came and lived what? A perfect life. Perfectly fulfilled the law of God without sin. And so when we stand before God one day, there won't be a curve. You're either clothed in your righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who must be the one to do this work of regeneration in the human heart. And the great thing about the gospel is that this is the offer in the gospel. Regeneration that the Holy Spirit does. And God's willing to take your sin, place it upon Christ, give you the righteousness of Christ. He's willing to make a trade. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's an exchange, isn't it? And it's a free gift. And again, Christ, Christ is saying this is part of the specified purpose of what the Holy Spirit does. Judging the world of sin and of righteousness. Showing us our sin and our need of Christ who is perfectly righteous and that we can be clothed in His righteousness. But He's not done yet talking about this specified purpose. He goes on to say He convicts, uh, convinces us of judgment. Now notice how Christ sets this up. We know that Satan not only will be judged, but has been judged. If the father of evil has not been able to escape judgment, then we know that as his children will not escape judgment either. The lost man who follows his father, the evil one who has been judged. Again, man just seems to know that he's going to stand before God and be judged. He's going to have to give an account. And who is it that puts this into his heart, that he's going to have to give an account before God? It's the Holy Spirit. And so I want to say to us tonight, thank God, thank God for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Without Him, you would have never been saved. You would have never seen your sin for what it is. And you would have never seen Christ for who He, for who he is and what He's done. Thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, folks, let's be honest, though. As Baptists, because we do, and I believe rightly so, we do distance ourselves from the Charismatics' view much of their view of the ministry of the Holy Spirit because we differ from charismatics. But we have allowed ourselves, I think, sometimes not to want to talk about the Holy Spirit because of what we see in the charismatics, their abuses of the doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be lumped in with charismatics. And so we've been guilty oftentimes of not even wanting to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But again, thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because your name and my name wouldn't be written in heaven's book of life without the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, at the same time, the Holy Spirit who draws you to Christ, convicts you of your sin, convinces, convinces you of righteousness and of judgment, He's the same Holy Spirit that Jesus said in this section of John. He comes alongside of us to comfort us, to help us, to strengthen us, and to teach us. So the believer, if you think about it, if you're a believer, you're, you're not totally isolated. He seals us too. He seals us? Yes. Ephesians 1.13. We're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the Spirit at the moment of conversion. Not some later second touch, long way it comes down there. We're baptized and sealed in the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Now, granted, we are to be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. That comes multiple times. But the baptism and the sealing of the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. But from that moment on in your life, you are not alone. Whatever you might be feeling this last year, you're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us. And Jesus points out here that he has a continuing proclamation. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive you from me, and he will re receive... Wait, let me back up. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Got tongue tangled there. 
I read about a man one time who went to Colorado to ski. And as he was skiing, he noticed a bunch of skiers on the slope, true story, that had red vests on. And as he got closer to them, he noticed that on the vest it said, blind skier. And he thought, how in the world do they do that? So he began asking questions, and he found out from one of the instructors that each blind skier has a guide. And they ski close together so that the blind person can always hear the guide. And the responsibility of the blind skier is to exhibit absolute, complete trust in their guide and to obey the commands of their guide. You know, life's a lot like that, right? We're rushing along downhill, and we don't even know what lies one minute in the future ahead of us. But God has given His children a personal guide. From the moment you're saved and sealed by the Spirit, He, he is your guide. You know, as Jesus met with his disciples uh, at, at this time, he had been with them, obviously, for three years. And he had taught them day and night. And yet, what did he say to them here? I have yet a lot more to say to you. But you can't bear it for now. So he had already seen what? That they weren't ready. Not long before this, when Jesus told them that he must die, you remember what Simon Peter had said? I'll never let that happen. Peter didn't understand that Christ must die. So many, of the, so many things, even the disciples at this point, didn't fully understand. So often we're like the little boy who was writing a letter to a little girl he had a crush on. He was just scribbling things on the paper, going to give his little girlfriend a love note. And his mom said, son, you can't write yet. And he said, that's okay, she can't read yet. <laughs> We're a lot like that. You take a new believer, and they're not ready yet to study some things of the Word of God. As they grow, the Holy Spirit opens their understanding up more and more and more. That's how all of us are through our Christian growth. The Holy Spirit has this unique ability because He's God's Spirit, and He perfectly knows God's truth and God's will, and He perfectly knows us. And so He's able to take a passage from the Word of God and help you apply it to your own life. A comparison here is, think of electricity. Rivers have been dammed up. Engineers have come up with a process that power flows into different cities along power grids and into transmission plants. Here's all this power that your home couldn't handle. It would thrive. So engineers have built transformers, not transmitters, but transformers. And these transformers 
break the voltage down into bite-sized parts so that we can use, so that we can then use the electricity in positive ways. I don't know if I gave the engineering exact answer, but the transformers, the way they make the power so it's usable. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does with God's truth. We're able to receive it because of the way He opens our understanding to see. Back in chapter 14, Jesus said, He will even bring things to your remembrance as you need them. Remember Him telling the disciples that? When you stand before the authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you what to say. The Holy Spirit will reveal it to you. Maybe you've been in a situation before talking to somebody. And you're like, Lord, help me to deal with this person. And then it's like all of a sudden you were... Something came into your mind that you knew you needed to talk to that person about. And, and they were able to later say, that's exactly what I needed in my life. God used you to touch me. The Holy Spirit helps us to remember what we've what we have learned, what we need to learn, how we need to apply that. And He's always with us. One more thing I'll get to you in a minute, Richard. Dr. James Merritt tells about when a large ship enters a harbor. It takes on board somebody known as what? A pilot or a harbor master. That harbor master is an expert on that harbor. He knows the depth, the dangers, the currents. And he's able to get on that ship and lead it safely into harbor. And then when they're pulling out of harbor, he gets on it long enough, he guides them out. A harbor master. Well, as we go through life, we have a harbor master, the Holy Spirit. Richard, you had a comment. Yeah, um, sometimes a, a Christian has to make a decision. Uh, he feels like he's in, uh, between a rock and a hard place. So he makes the decision, and then uh, he realizes later on the decision he made was wrong, but the world would say, uh, you could have made either one would have been right but the Holy Spirit would tell you the decision you made was wrong so sometimes you get between a rock and a hard place which means I can't figure out which way to what decision to make so you make in the flesh wrong decisions and you should have been listening to the Holy Spirit sure certainly and, and notice who Jesus says here that the Holy Spirit will point people to who the Holy Spirit will glorify. And who is that? Christ. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't glorify Himself or call attention to Himself. He points us to Jesus and glorifies Jesus. I think that... <clears throat> 
It took me a long time to realize that we have not because we ask not. We don't get up in the morning and say, Holy Spirit, direct me today, lead me. Yeah. And so we don't have the, the power is there for us, yeah. but we don't take advantage of it. And you know what's neat about that, Marlene, is remember when Jesus said in Luke 11, earthly fathers being evil, if, if your son asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. And if he asks for fish, you're not going to give him a snake or an eel. And what did Jesus go on to say? How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So it's the Father's good pleasure for the Holy Spirit to be with the believer and guide the believer and comfort the believer. Again. Some, some of these Bible studies I've had here at this church have made a lot of those things more clear to me. Amen. After being a Christian for many, many years, sure. we studied the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It just makes a big difference. Amen. Amen. So again, tonight, you can know if you're facing rough waters, you've got a harbor master, the Holy Spirit. You can know that you're not alone. And as you study God's Word, you can ask Him each time as you go in to study God's Word. Ask Him that through the power of His Holy Spirit, He would help you to understand His Word and to see the things that God would have you to see and to know. And the Holy Spirit will help you. And again, as a Christian, know that we can be and should be very grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit because without Him, you wouldn't be sitting here tonight as a believer because He convicted you of your sin, whether it was quietly in your bedroom one night or whether it was in a church revival service and whether it happened over a moment of time or over a month, it's the Holy Spirit who convicted you of your sin and drew you to faith in Christ and regenerated you from the inside out. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we can be very grateful for what the third member of the Trinity does, for who He is and for what He does. Amen.